Boom, put boom, boom, A side, B side, what side are you on? Welcome back. It's another episode of A side, B side podcast. How's it going, Adam? It is good, Brooke. How are you? Pretty good. So finally, finally getting, I know, like I said that last week too, but I, I have all of the big stuff in the apartment, but most of the boxes unpacked. I do have a couple boxes still in storage, um, but uh, it's feeling like an apartment now, like really a feeling like an apartment. So I'm happy about that. And uh, I don't know if you saw my Snapchat, but uh, you, you had taken a picture of your floors because you really liked them. And I think we have the same floors. Oh, do we? Oh, I got to open so it. it. They're real similar. Oh, wow. I mean, they're not exactly the same, but it's like they're cousins at least that it's. Oh, they are. Yeah, because what what when was your building built? Like relatively new, right? Oh, uh, like last week they finished. Two weeks ago. Yeah, I mean. yeah. So and mine's like two years old. So it's it's all the rage. This this flooring is. Are your countertops white marble as well? No, uh, white marble. Is that yeah. what you said? Yeah, white marble. Or do you have just gray? I have just gray. Okay. But the counter, but the count, the counters and the the cupboards are all white and everything. No, I actually have wooden color. You have wooden ones. Oh, yeah. Wow. All right. I guess. I guess. I guess they're not as as related as I thought. But, but our a, floors a, are the same. A lot of the places I did look at had the white. Uh, yeah, it's cupboards. It's the it's the trend. Which I'm. Well, I like, I prefer the wooden. Yeah, the white. I gotta clean a lot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's one of those things where I'm like, how dirty are my hands? Like, I wash my hands a lot. I'm like making food and washing it. I've got like hand sanitizer all over this place. And I look at the cabinet. I'm like, why is that dirty? Yeah. Also, I have this, the stainless steel. So I've got stainless steel appliances and then the, the flat top, which I love the flat top. But at the same time, every time I cook on it, I'm like, please don't break. 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 <sighs> Which I know they're pretty, they make them pretty sturdy now. Cause I think like when they first came out, that was an issue, but now not so much, but that's still in my head from years from ago. Way back. Yeah. yeah. I, I just get annoyed whenever I, when I cook, because, you know, I live in a very a small studio. So when I'm, when I'm in the kitchen, I'm also in the living room and the bedroom and <laughs> almost in the bathroom. <laughs> and there's one very, like I have the world's most overprotective smoke alarm if there is if there is a whip of smoke like i tried to make bacon this weekend that was not a good choice because bacon you know it you know bubbles and there's grease and you get a little smoke and man it started going off and my dog she's super chill about just about everything but when that smoke alarm goes off she is very unhappy yeah and and so i've tried to like preemptively like i've got a ceiling fan and i've got the fan on the on the microwave so I turned those on and she and now she knows that that's usually a sign that the thing's gonna go off so she'll see the ceiling fan on and she'll just look at me and she'll like run into the into her into the closet into her room be like <laughs> okay the alarm's coming I'm like have a little faith <laughs> poor thing poor thing she does not like it so um real quick for you did you know because I know we're both really into Marvel so I mm-hmm. thought you would find this fact very interesting. Did you know that Bill Murray was 
not technically in the MCU, but in a Marvel um, production. I I didn't. What, what is Marvel related? It's it's so it's Marvel, but it was in like 1970s. Uh, they did a radio production from the comic books, 13 episodes, which kind of relates to you because you were talking about the shadow a couple weeks ago yeah, on the, yeah, the yeah. radio. Um, so they did like a, a radio production based off of uh, the Fantastic Four comics. And he was Johnny Storm, the Human really? Torch. Mm-hmm, that's who he voiced. A role that he would never get cast as in a live action. Right. Exactly. Huh. But yes, he was the voice of Johnny Storm, which I was like, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Now I'm trying to find it because I want to hear it. Radio play. If you can't find it. I'll get the link for you and send it to you. Oh, YouTube. YouTube brings it out again. Okay. All right. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. But I thought I was like, oh, Adam will love this. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, I know what I'm doing tonight. <laughs> nice. I've sent you down a rabbit hole already. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's so cool. All right. I'm not going to start. I'm not going to read all this stuff because I'm going to get distracted. But Okay. All right. All right. Um, anything good this week? Uh, I've been just plugging along with the uh, HBO Max. So uh, I've rewatched all of the Lord of the Rings in the last week. Uh, my topic for today's A-side, uh, I have watched three times because of HBO Go. Um, uh, it was a pretty big week if you're an NCIS fan. Oh, yeah. Uh, like, spoiler alerts for anybody who hasn't seen the latest episode, but uh, there are big changes afoot. Uh, and during COVID, I watched literally every episode of NCIS. I went all the way back to the beginning. And between the two shutdowns and over the last year, I watched all... 18 seasons of NCIS. So I've, I've gone through a lot of change, but this is a, is a pretty big one. That it's is a huge, recently. yeah. And that you went all the way back to the days of uh, like, what was her name? Ziva? Yeah. Well, yeah. Ziva, when she left twice before Ziva, when uh, the actress who would go on to be on Rizzoli and Isles was on it. Uh, I'm trying to remember her name. I didn't do any NCIS uh, prep for Lynx to get the cast from the early seasons but yeah uh sasha uh, sasha alexander when she was on the first couple seasons like way back when so, yeah yeah but and it was really through me when uh uh fez from uh that 70s show uh, wilder valderrama joined the cast Wilmer, that threw yeah. Me off. yeah mm-hmm. but now he's been on the cast for like years so yeah so i watched that and i went to uh the new bond movie how was that? It was, I really enjoyed it. Uh, it was, it's, it's long and it yes. is clearly the last Daniel Craig Bond movie because they, they did, they spent a lot of time like tying up a lot of loose ends from the other movies. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know that it, it stands as strongly as a movie by itself, but it definitely did a good job of connecting with with all of those uh all the loose ends from the from whether it was casino royale or skyfall or specter all of those you know callbacks uh there was a really fun it almost felt like there was a mini bond movie in it and then there was like the bigger arc there was like 
the first half was, was very traditional style Bond movie with like gadgets and trying to figure out who did this. And then there was a larger like tiring up the bigger picture stuff. So uh, Ana de Armas is amazing. Uh, and she's, I wanted more of her in the movie. Uh, but her her role was really fun, and that was definitely the kind of the part that felt like a traditional Bond movie. And then uh, we went into the little the bigger denouement of the whole series sort of thing. So mm-hmm. I I would highly recommend it if you've seen the others. If you like Bond, there's a little bit of everything in it, uh, and it's a it's a very it, it was long. It's long, but it it doesn't feel as long because you you know it goes pretty quickly. But there's a lot. They pack a lot in. Yeah, yeah. Rami was good. Rami was good. I uh, also felt like he wasn't really used as much as he could have been. Mm. Um, I think they just, they tried to do so many things. That's why it's such a long movie. It's all, you know, it's three hours long. And I I would have been really interested to see more of a, a traditional Bond movie with him as the villain. Mm-hmm. Because it kind of felt like they really, like he wasn't really utilized as much as he could be okay okay i mean he's very um, good but you just you kind of kind of left you wanting more yeah yeah i did not have not gotten to see any movies we were going to try to go yesterday we were looking at both venom uh and we were looking at uh, james bond but james bond was like three hours and it was yeah. already later <laughs> in the evening and i was like yeah nope gotta get up and then um i was asking uh some people about venom and i was like do i really need to see the first one and they're like probably yeah so i mean kind of i mean you know the story right and that's what they were saying like you'll be able to enjoy it but the first one gives you that background into their relationship their what what their symbiotic relationship or whatever yeah so but fun fact because you know me and my my random fun fact knowledge so Mm -hmm. have you seen venom i have not yet I've I've actually had tickets reserved twice and had other things come up, so I'm I'm sort of annoyed with myself, but I'm hoping to get there. Apparently, there's a scene in Venom where they're like outside and something's happening, and you can see two helicopters in the sky. Okay, those helicopters were actually part of Matrix, the newest Matrix filming. Oh, really. <laughs> So they technically weren't supposed to be in the shot, but they just didn't cut it out because they felt eh, whatever. But yeah, so it's they're from a scene in Matrix, but they were both filming in LA at the same time. And Matrix had permission to film downtown, whereas mm-hmm. Venom didn't. So it ended up those helicopters made the shot. Oh, that's cool. That's fun little like behind the scenes movie magic. Right? Yeah. yeah. There. Uh, my my favorite one that I didn't get to mention that's been bugging me for weeks when we talked about my favorite uh, movie of all time. And I, what I wanted to mention is that Robert Redford in Sneakers wears a jacket. And it's this leather jacket. And it's the same leather jacket that he wears in The Natural. Oh, wow. Because he kept it from The Natural. And he wore it like to the set one day. And they're like, hey, that's awesome. And you should wear that. And so that jacket gets to be in two different movies. Oh, now that's cool. So that's kind of cool. And I totally meant to m- mention that, but I was so caught up in all the other things I loved about sneakers that I didn't even mention. I've got one more for you. Okay. So Halloween coming out this weekend. The, the Halloween, ha- Halloween Kills. Halloween Kills. Halloween yeah. Kills. James yeah. Jude Courtney, who 
I did get to meet when the the last Halloween came out, big guy, big guy. Mm. But apparently um, he <laughs> was writing a book about someone that happened to be like a hitman or something. And so he like actually lived with this guy for a while. And this guy mm. kind of told him his philosophy about, about murdering someone. Like you get in, you do the job, you get out. And he said he took that philosophy into Michael Myers, which is... I mean, who better to get murderous tips from than a professional murderer, I guess. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. So know that going into Halloween Kills that he had tips from an actual hired murderer. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I'm just going to go, I'm going to go out on a limb here and saying the, the one thing this podcast is not is a, a horror movie podcast. Because I will not be seeing that in the theaters. <laughs> would you be seeing Halloween Kills in the theaters? I probably will. You will? That's, that's one of the ones that I can actually watch. It's like the things like Annabelle or Paranormal Activity. You won't catch me watching those. No. Mm-mm. No. Oh. Yeah. I mean, like my, my Halloween go-to movies, like October, the only like Halloween style movies that I will watch are like Hocus Pocus and uh nightmare before christmas and rocky horror picture show practical magic gotta put that on there yeah but that i'll just watch any sandra bullock movie at any time of the year so i mean i probably watch that in as many months other than october (laughs) yeah so but yeah i think october like there are certain months that you just associate movies with like you know christmas movie there are certain movies that come out at christmas like die hard mm-hmm. uh, and like all the lord of the rings movies it was funny because last night i watched the extended version so i've been watching i've been burning through the extended versions because they're all on uh, hbo go and i was thinking about back to the first time i had seen fellowship of the ring and i have i have a complicated emotional connection to uh, lord of the rings because the first the day lord uh, fellowship of the ring came out uh, my group, my friend group, we all went to it. We were in college. And at the time I had, like, we were at the Mall of America. So we all went to the Mall of America and I, I picked up the engagement ring that I would then use to propose to my now ex-wife. But I, I had the ring in my pocket through the entire fellowship of the ring. Wow. So it's very weird. So I have this strange, like, personal ring connection to Fellowship yeah. of the Ring. Yeah. But I always remember they all came out at Christmas as well. So I always associate them with December. Uh, so it's, it's weird. And October has those spooky movies. But, like, nobody's like, hey, man, this is an April movie. <laughs> That's true. Hey, this is a, a March 15th movie. Yeah. Hmm. Like, it's like just certain months get, like, that ability to, to have uh, their own movies, but others don't. Like, you know. Unless you've got like a big holiday or something, you're like, eh. Everybody's like, oh, this is an August movie. I'm going to watch this in August. And I'm like, no, it's just really hot outside. Now, you do have summer blockbusters. True. But I always that think, seems I mean, to be more theater. Yeah. And I, I think that, and that's more like when I first, for me at least, the idea of summer blockbusters always like happened around like the July 4th, like yeah. July, like. Yeah. fireworks and it was like independence day came out on july 4th and that was like the first time that i remember like there were blockbusters before like you know i saw like jurassic park but 
for some reason, Independence Day and having that July 4th and having it be so connected, one, it's got to be one of the greatest marketing stories of all time to have it set up that way, to have it come out on July 4th weekend, to have it be about July 4th. And it was just really well done. That's why I, I often thought if we could get the opportunity to, to write the COVID reopening script as a movie, like it would make sense to have everything, like everything open again this summer on July 4th, but Delta took care of that. Yeah, well, and not the truth. Um, one last thing before we jump into it. This is more podcast crime related. Um, I don't know. I posted this on our uh, Instagram story because mm-hmm. it just really bugged me so badly this morning when I saw it. So uh, if you've been fo- following the Gabby Petito, Ryan Landry case, you know that Dog the Bounty Hunter has decided to jump in. We, we mentioned that last week. Yeah. Dog the Bounty Hunter is probably looking for a revival of his series. Well, he has come out now. There was an article on msn.com. Um, and if you want the link, I can send it to you. I did send it to someone this morning um, after they saw the post on Instagram. But he has had the nerve to come out and say, uh, Brian Landry was a gentleman or is a gentleman, according to his friend. Oh, I've heard according to his friends, he's a gentleman. And then he says, in the, um, you know, in this interview, mm-hmm that he theorizes because you know we still don't know where brian landry is whatever but his theory is that it was an accident and that gabby who was loud and boisterous he was just trying to calm her down so you have called an alleged murderous monster a gentleman i don't care if he helps old ladies across the street and he's donated to you know every poc minority group there is he's still an alleged murderer therefore who's hiding who who's, is hiding right who's on the run right. who is not cooperated with police all of those things not especially gentlemanly right therefore no not a gentleman and then you victim blame you say oh well she was loud and he was trying to calm her down you don't need to put your hands on her for anything so if you put your hands on her to quote calm her down and you accidentally murdered her no there was no reason for you to put your hands on her there no no there was just everything about that was like are you freaking kidding me yeah and it's it's a real it's a real dangerous and completely unproductive theory to put out there like he like he has no no reason to be putting that out there no evidence to suggest it it's like why are we clouding the issue or creating potential alibis for someone who's hiding and won't even give an alibi right exactly uh it just it it flew all over me as they say this morning when i read that on msn and i was just like you've got to be kidding me you've got to be kidding me and i know he says some dumb stuff but this, it like takes the cake. Yeah, that 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 feels a bit much. And just un- unproductive. And and where's the why? You know yeah. why why even do that? Yeah. All right. Well, are you ready to jump into some murder? Yeah, yeah. Let's uh, let's do some murder. 
<laughs> you say that like, oh yeah, I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, I'm like down. I was like, okay, guess it's time for the murder. <laughs> it's like it's like when you're like, ah, oh, you know what? I gotta do the laundry today. <laughs> I knew this was coming. It's an important part of my day, but <laughs> all right, time for the murders. All right. All right. So last week we talked about the not really rare, but you know, less common female serial killer. So this week we're back to the men. And Adam, I think this is the first time we've talked about Connecticut, isn't it? Yeah, I, I don't. I don't remember ever talking about Connecticut in most conversations. <laughs> oh, sorry if you're Connecticut. No, it's it's. There's nothing wrong with Connecticut. It's just not a place that you like bring up in a lot of conversations. I mean, unless you're talking about the home of ESPN or women's basketball, um, I, I often don't think of Connecticut. I always, but when I do, I always have to say Connecticut, so that I can spell it correctly. Uh, that has nothing to do with the story. That's just my personal, like you know, it's like Wednesday. You know, when yeah, you spell it out, yeah. yeah. It's just a little helpful tint. Yeah. Tint. A A little tint as well. A little tint. So this story is all about Michael Bruce Ross. So um, I was actually given this story by a professor in Bowling Green that went to school with him. Hmm. So Michael was born July 26th of 1959 in Brooklyn, Connecticut. His parents, Patricia Hilda Lane and Dan Graham Ross, um, they had three more children after Michael, two boys, or excuse me, two girls and a boy. So Michael grew up on his parents' chicken and egg farm. Unfortunately, his home life was pretty dysfunctional. His mom at one point was institutionalized and had left the family at one point as well. And when she was around, she was abusive toward all of our children, especially Michael, maybe because he was the oldest, he got the brunt of it. I don't know. Um, it's also been implied by other family members that Michael was a victim of molestation by an uncle who was a teenager at the time. Again, it's been implied. I could not verify that fact. He's not talked about it. It's just something that family members have implied. So Michael was an extremely smart young man and he received good grades throughout school. In high school, his focus was on animal science, which seems kind of natural coming from the fact that he you know, grew up on a chicken and egg farm. Mm-hmm. Um, he graduated from Killingly High School in 1977. And then he went on to graduate from Cornell University in 1981. Top school. Yeah. I mean, you know, got to be pretty good. So one of um, Cornell is one of eight Ivy Leagues in the country. While he was there, he studied agriculture. After, um, after graduation, he began working as an insurance salesman. He also for a short time worked on an egg farm near Columbus, but couldn't stay focused on the chickens, which I think would be kind of important on an yeah. egg farm. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that'd be kind of a required part of it. Job one. Yeah, probably. <laughs> so Michael was pretty antisocial and his behavior, his behavior began at a really early age. He actually began stalking women when he was a sophomore in college. It was when he was a senior that he escalated because, you know, it doesn't always stay at that level. You got to right. get that thrill, you know, that thrill kind of, uh, uh, what is it? 
when it uh chasing the high yeah so you know you've got the you're going along steady and then you're not getting a high anymore you got to up the ante yeah your tolerance your tolerance level gets high it's not not as scary not as exciting so you just you do more and more right right so he escalates to rape but it doesn't take long to go from rape to murder all right so we're going to go back to his days of cornell for a second because it's during his time there when things really took a turn for michael and contributed to his troubling preoccupations so while at cornell michael had a longtime girlfriend whom he actually had planned to marry she'd gotten pregnant but she didn't keep the baby and this strained their relationship His girlfriend was in ROTC and decided to sign up for a four-year service commitment, effectively ending their relationship. Yeah. Long distance is tough, especially in the 70s. Yes. So Michael had been quoted as saying that as the relationship began having more and more issues, he began to have fantasies that got increasingly more sexually violent. After his first murder, it was a rape murder. He claims that he tried to commit suicide because he felt so awful about what he'd done. Well, he was not able to complete the task of taking his life, but he vowed to never hurt anyone again. But if he had, we wouldn't be talking about him. So he obviously didn't keep that promise. Yeah, he didn't succeed on either of those fronts. Right. Between 1981 and 1984, while working as an insurance salesman, Michael raped and murdered eight women between the ages of 14 and 25. Now you think in the eighties working as um, insurance, there was a lot of travel involved in that. Mm-hmm. That w- wasn't that the time of like door to door for insurance. Yeah. Well, and I mean, you had to have like real signatures on everything. So people had to get paper. So everything had to be signed and, you know, done in person, I would assume. Yeah. And, and wasn't, uh, wasn't that movie with where he flies around and he fires people? <laughs> Sounds like The Apprentice, which is oh, a TV kind show. of. Oh, give, give me a second. I'll come to. But yeah, a lot of plane travel, uh, a lot of face to face meetings required. Yeah. Well, you look that up. I'm going to tell you. He was also alleged to have raped, but not murdered, a 21 year old victim, Vivian Dobson, in 1983. Police rejected him as a perpetrator. No charges were filed. And he never confessed to that one. But he was suspected. Did you find it? Yeah, it's up in the air. George Clooney. Oh, yeah. That's yeah, right. Or like, like he, he's basically like his career is ending because people we don't need to travel around and do everything in person anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So Michael Ross confesses to each of his eight murders. So he's got the victims of uh, Zung Nok Tu, who was 25, and a Cornell University student who was murdered on May 12th of 1981. 17-year-old mm-hmm. Tammy Williams, Brooklyn, New York resident. She died January 5th of 1982. Paula Pereira, 16, of Walk Hill, New York. She died in March of 1982. 23-year-old Deborah Smith-Taylor of Griswold, Connecticut. Uh, Her date of 
death, June 15th, 1982. Robin Don Stavinsky, 19, of Norwich, Connecticut. She died October 23rd of 1983. April Brunias and Leslie Shelley, both 14, both of Griswold, Connecticut, both died on April 22nd of 1984. And then 17-year-old Wendy Barabolt of Griswold, Connecticut. Uh, she died of June 13th of 1984. It was after the death of Wendy that Michael Malchek was assigned to the case as chief investigator. And witnesses were able to provide a description of Wendy's kidnapper's car. So Wendy went missing and people were able to provide the description of a blue Toyota and they were actually able to provide a description of her suspected kidnapper. So investigator Malchik starts interviewing blue Toyota owners. That was like, you know, that's the old school days. Give me yeah. DMV records of every single blue Toyota, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and like the, in the three state area. Right. We're going right. to find every. So, Talk about you know, door to door. Yeah, I was just going to say that. Talk about seriously door to door. So he's talking to all of the blue Toyota owners, which is what led him to Michael Ross. So Michael Malchik, the investigator, testified that Michael Ross baited him to ask more and more questions by dropping subtle hints that he was the one responsible for Wendy's murder. At the time, Michael was residing in Jewett City and working as an insurance agent. By this time, his parents had divorced and they had sold their farm. The investigator said that when he brought Michael in for questioning, they talked like two old buddies about family, girlfriends, life in general, which is a trick that some investigators will use to bring people's defenses down. And totally a, a sales guy thing i mean sales you know sales people are historically or no like stereotypically like they can talk to anybody about anything mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and maybe that's why he chose to to go about it that way as someone who you know well he's an insurance agent he talks to people for a living i'm just gonna go in and act like we're old buds so by the end of the interrogation Michael ends up confessing to the kidnapping, rape, and murder of the eight young women that we mentioned. 1986. So this is not one where he's like, I didn't do it. I'm going to string you along. No, he's like, I did it. Yeah, I did it. Yeah. And, it and, I, and I don't know, but it could partially be like that very first time where he felt that guilt and he tried to, to take his own life and it could finally be like, well, yeah, you know, maybe it, it, it was sitting on him. I don't know. Yeah, so, sometimes we hear about people saying that getting caught is is the relief because now they know that they'll they'll be stopped or something. Right, exactly. Like um, Ed Kemper. If you have never looked into Ed Kemper, you really should. But he actually pretty much gave police. He turned himself in because he's a genius, and he knew he he needed to be stopped, and he knew they weren't going to catch him. So, you know, like you said the only way to stop them is to get caught. Yeah. So in 1986, Michael's defense team moved for a dismissal on the murders of Leslie Shelley and April Bernayas because of the location of the murders. Defense claimed that the women were not murdered in the state of Connecticut, 
Therefore, they were outside of the jurisdiction. The state says that they were, in fact, murdered in Connecticut. And even if they hadn't been, that Michael's murders began and ended in Connecticut, which granted Connecticut jurisdiction. You go state. I like that. They were like, oh, no, 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 no. This is ours. We're taking it. He's going down. There was a bit of controversy surrounding the investigation and surrounding investigator Malchik because there was a statement that the state produced during trial by Malchik claiming that Michael had given him directions to a crime scene. Investigator Malchik claimed that the directions were left out of statements, both written and recorded two years prior. Michael Ross denies ever giving these directions. On July 6th of 1987, Michael Ross was convicted of the murders of four of his eight victims, Robin, April, Leslie, and Wendy. The jury took 86 minutes, minutes to deliberate his conviction. And then another four hours to decide his punishment. So a total of not even six hours to convict and figure out his punishment which was death. While incarcerated, Michael met and became engaged to Susan Powers from Oklahoma. Susan eventually breaks off the engagement in 2003, but continues to visit Michael up until his death. While incarcerated, Michael became a devout Catholic And through the years, he regularly met with priests and prayed each morning with a rosary. Michael also translated documents into Braille, acted as a mentor to troubled inmates, and even financially sponsored a child from the Dominican Republic. So it was kind of like I was saying earlier where, you know, people are like, oh, Brent or Dog's Bounty Hunter is like, oh, he's a gentleman. Yeah, he's doing all these great things. And I'm happy he turned his life around. But it doesn't, doesn't excuse what you did. Right. You still murdered eight women. Yeah. Michael was anti-death penalty, but surprisingly supported his own death sentence in the last year of his life. He said he wanted to spare his victims' families of any more pain. Michael Ross waived his right to appeal and was scheduled to be executed on January 26th of 2005. But an hour before his execution his attorney obtained a two-day stay of execution on behalf of Michael's father. Michael was then scheduled for execution on January 29th of 2005, but early in that day, again, his execution was postponed because doubts arose about Michael's mental competency due to the fact that he had fought against his death sentence for 17 years, then suddenly waived his right to appeal. He claimed, his attorney claimed that he was incompetent and suffering from death row syndrome, which is emotional distress experienced by prisoners on death row as a result of the isolation. In his final days, Michael became an oblat, which is an associate of the Benedictine Grange, um, a Roman Catholic monastic community in West Reading, Connecticut. The appeals ran out and uh or should i say he was not given any more stays of execution and michael was executed by lethal injection on may 13th of 2005 at 2 25 a.m 
at Osborne Correctional Institution in Summers, Connecticut. On his last day, he woke up at 5.45. He ate breakfast at six o'clock. It was a breakfast of oatmeal. Between 6 a.m. and 8 a.m., he read the newspaper and watched television. At 8.10, he was moved to a holding cell next to the death chamber. He took with him a Bible, a book of Bible verses, some candy, and a cup of coffee. Which can I say, I cannot imagine the feeling. I guess by that time you have resigned yourself to this fact, but to be in a room next to where you're about to die and to know that, I can't imagine that feeling. Well, and like, it's interesting that this guy had, this is like the third day that he started out his day waking up thinking today's the day I'm going to be executed. Yeah. Because he got the stay of execution the other two times. So maybe by the third time he was like, whatever. And maybe, or, or you know, was he like, whatever? Or was he like, here we go again. Uh, yeah. probably coming in you know yeah it, it, it's not gonna happen i'll be fine and until that moment when he realizes oh nobody's come yeah so at nine o'clock that morning he received communion at 11 o'clock he had lunch of a cheeseburger and hash browns shortly after lunch he was visited by family friends and his attorney at three o'clock on may third uh, may 12th actually he ate his final meal he chose to eat the same meal served to all of the inmates that day which was a thursday it was turkey yellow king, rice, fruit, mixed vegetables, and white bread. Uh, he continues to receive visitors after his meal. And this is all according to the State Department of Corrections. When Michael was asked if he'd like to make a last statement, without opening his eyes, he said, no, thank you. Michael was pronounced dead at 225. His remains were buried at the Benedictine Grange Cemetery in Redding, Connecticut. After his execution, Dr. Stuart Gracian, a psychiatrist who had argued that Michael was not competent to waive appeal, received a letter from Michael dated May 10th of 2005, three days prior to his execution, that read, check and mate. You never had a chance. Michael Ross's execution was the first let me go back to that. He knew that this was it and yeah. sent this letter to this man. That's creepy. Yeah. Michael Ross's execution was the first in Connecticut and pretty much all of New England since 1960. It was also the first and only execution in Connecticut administered by lethal injection. As of June of 2020, Ross is the most recent inmate executed in Connecticut since the abolition of the death penalty on April 25th of 2012. So earlier we mentioned Vivian Dobson, who Michael was suspected of raping, but never charged nor admitted to. Mm -hmm. She actually became a vocal opponent to the death penalty in an effort to save Michael's life. Michael's execution was not only the first in Connecticut since 1960, it was the 22nd in the U.S. in 2005, and the 966th in the U.S. since 1976. Michael was a suspect in several rapes and murders in Indiana, but he was never charged, nor did he admit to any of them. In 1995, Michael Ross appeared in a British TV series about serial killers. He was given the nickname Roadside Strangler by the filmmakers because the other killers in the series all had nicknames. Michael 
was never actually called the Roadside Strangler by Connecticut media or local law enforcement. It was just for the television show. Yeah. Hollywood gun Hollywood. Yes. Or in this this case, London got a London. (laughs) London got a London. Yeah. Um, In 20... Media going to do their thing. Yeah. In 2015, The Man and the Monster, an intimate portrait of a serial killer, gave detailed accounts of Michael's spree, capture, trial, prison life, and execution. It was published by Penguin Press and written by Martha Elliott, a former Columbia school teacher, a school of journalism professor. The book documents a 10-year relationship via phone and in-person visits that developed between Martha and Michael. And there you go. That's the case of the, quote, roadside strangler. That's the case of Michael Ross. It's amazing to think that, like, his last act was committed in 84. And every time we talk about the death penalty, the amount of time that always elapses between, you know, how long people have for appeals and you know all sorts of stuff i mean 21 years before he actually even had it scheduled right and then they like bumped it three times because of yeah you know getting questions and you know the reprieves which you know it just shows the difference in like our system and then we've we've commented on this before like in the uk they're they're like sent to death are you about to die tomorrow yeah, well, at least it, it used to be. I mean, then what's his name? Uh, we we talked about a couple months ago who uh, was... They've actually, uh, yeah, they have actually yeah. stopped it. Stopped it. But yes, in the past, when it, when in somebody past, was sentenced, it was it was efficient. Yeah, it was like okay, so you were sentenced today. Next week, you're gone. Yeah, there there's a lot of time for to to make sure that we uh, you know appeals processes and you know opportunities to make sure that you get it right yeah but uh there you go and and i wonder what was the switch in his brain you know where he was so he fought for so many years and then like i said in the last year of his life he was like yeah you know what it's it's time like what triggered in his brain could be his you know conversion to becoming religious not fearing death in the same way i don't know yeah I mean, it's it's pure speculation, but unless he actually said, but it sure sounds like he was ready to go out when he's, you know, sending gotcha letters to people. Yeah, to send that to somebody who was fighting to save you. And, but, you know, but by that time he was fighting to not be saved. So yeah, to send that letter to that, that, uh, that doctor, be like, yeah. check and mate. And also, how embarrassing would it have been if he did get a reprieve? I'm sure that somebody held on to that letter until after, and then they mailed it. You know, probably some inmate buddy or something. And then once they got the word that he was, you know, that's my speculation. That's my theory. That some inmate buddy held on to it. You know, he's like, you know, after you get the word about me, mail this out for me or something. Right. Yeah. Because you want to get this guy that's trying to keep me alive how dare he yeah (laughs) some nerve buddy yeah but there you go that's the uh that's the b-side 
All right. On the A side last week, uh, I was negative on purpose for one of the first times in our 65 episodes. And I have, I think I've mentioned this to you, Rick, that I've tried to focus on the positive of a lot of things and talk about neat things or, you know, the background of stories and, and not turn, you know, the podcast into just a bash cast where we talk about how bad something is or how much we hate something. It's cause it's, it's really easy to do. I mean, it's, one of the, my personal beliefs, one of the easiest things, parts of the human condition is to complain. Uh, but it can also be really draining when you do that. So I've really tried not to be extra negative when we talk about the A side. Mm-hmm. And then two weeks in a row, I'm going to be negative. <laughs> okay, I'm ready. However, this week, after last week where we talked about Uh, Max Payne and how frustrated I was about the missed opportunities. Uh, I got to thinking about how easy it is to get in that negative mindset and how sometimes a narrative when given permission becomes the entire, like when somebody says, Hey, we can be negative about this, or it's cool to bash this, that everybody kind of piles on because we feel like it is allowed. And that got me to thinking about a movie that I stumbled upon through uh, HBO Go again. Again, HBO Go, if you'd like to sponsor us, I'm watching you a lot, so it's very helpful. Uh, <laughs> who just seems to get almost an undeserved level of vitriol and negativity and becomes the butt of so many jokes. But then I said, you know, I haven't really sat down and watched this movie since it came out in 2011. And when even the stars of the movie are poking fun at it, maybe maybe it's right that we should all be be making fun of this movie and it wasn't any good. And I should give it another chance to see it just so I can agree that that this is a really poorly done movie. So in the last three days, I have rewatched 2011's Green Lantern starring Ryan Reynolds, Blake Lively, Peter Sarsgaard, and Mark Strong no less than four times with the <laughs> stated goal of, I watched it, I shouldn't say no less than four times, at least four times. I don't know how to count the one where I fell asleep. How so, far did you get into it? I was like two thirds of the way and, and the movie played with, with the sound on. So I feel like I watched that one by osmosis. Yeah, it counts. So, so I think that, so at least four times, five, if you count when I was half asleep through the second half, which I think honestly, that fifth rewatch was probably my favorite because uh, I fell asleep in it. But I decided, <laughs> I decided let's look at Green Lantern, figure out why people hate it. What, went wrong with the movie and were there any redeeming things of it were there was there anything good about the movie besides becoming the butt of jokes uh in other ryan reynolds uh productions he's it's become a running gag that uh he does not like the movie and like they mentioned in you know deadpool deadpool at one point when he's being you know, pulled off to the superhero factory, spoiler alert. Uh, he says, just don't make my costume green and animated. And then in Deadpool 2, he shows up 
and using a time machine goes back and corrects a lot of movie mistakes. And one of which is shooting Ryan Reynolds before he gets the script to Green Lantern. Yes. Uh, then most recently in promotion for Free Guy, which was supposed to come out in summer of 2020 and didn't actually come out till summer of 2021, but they were promoting in February and March of 2020 was uh, the, because they both star uh, both Ryan Reynolds and I love his movies. I think he's a great actor. I just cannot pronounce his name correctly. Wati, Taki, Wattiti? Waiko Waititi. Waka, I mean, Taika, Taika Waititi, sorry. Taika Waititi. Taika Waititi, who's amazing. Jojo Rabbit is literally one of the best movies I've seen in the last three years. Uh, and I need to do a better job of figuring out how to pronounce his name consistently. But both he and Ryan Reynolds are in Green Lantern. And it's funny because I watched, you know, when I'm watching this, I'm like, gosh, they look so young because the movie was filmed in like 2008 or 2009, 2010. It was released in 2011. So these guys are like, like 12, 13 years ago. And I'm like, gosh, they look so young. And they now they're, you know, doing all sorts of other stuff. But they're also in this new movie, Free Guy. And in promotion for the movie, they're at a interview thing and they've got the other stars of Free Guy with them. It's Jody Comer and uh, uh, he's from Stranger Things. He's got the hair, uh, looks kind of like Harry Styles. Oh my goodness. What oh, the British guy. Um... Yeah. He plays Steve. He plays Steve, and I can say Steve, but I can't think of, I can't think of the actor's name. It is, it is not listed on IMDb on the first page. So that's all. <laughs> Joe Joe Curie. Joe Curie. Yes, that's it. Yes. It is. It's just. I mean, the guy's got such great hair. Why would you pick that as your headshot? It's it's a far shot. I, you can barely tell. Uh, but they're all getting interviewed and Jodie Comer and Joe Keery are like, well, yeah, weren't you guys in a movie before? And uh, Taka Waititi and Ryan Reynolds basically just completely pretend that they've never met before and they didn't do Green Lantern. And so it's become this sort of running gag that Green Lantern was horrible. And I was like, okay, well, let's rewatch it, figure out what were some of the things that were good about it, some of the things that weren't, and why does everybody hate it? Because I honestly remember seeing it in the theater and I don't remember hating it. I don't remember loving it, but I didn't hate it. It was like, okay, it was a superhero movie. And it felt at the time that maybe people were hating on it because it was a superhero movie and it was pre really the height of the MCU and superheroes becoming socially acceptable. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a time when like superheroes were not, comic books were not considered cool like they are today. Like right. it is just acceptable that you know people like grown adults can read comic books and be innocent because of the mcu to a certain extent because even when batman was huge and superman were huge we weren't talking about you know the green lanterns or like even like the super small smaller character like guardians of the galaxy i've been a cardi a comic book fan my entire life and i had never heard of guardians of the galaxy before the movie came out i'd never read a guardians of the galaxy you know comic book or any of that you know so it was never heard of the internals that's coming out i didn't know shang chi now everyone's a little bit more accepting and it's cooler and it felt like this one was made fun of at the time because oh it's a comic book movie and it's not very good and comic book movies are historically not good uh because other other than your you know batmans and supermans where they're like huge giant blockbusters you know they're usually pretty bad 
And 2011 was a rough year for superhero movies. I mean, you had uh, one of the worst Marvel movies that is not part of canon, the Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance, which I also watched in the last two weeks with Nicolas Cage and Kieran Hines. We mentioned that last week. Uh, there was the Cowboys and Aliens, which I was so excited about when it, and I saw the trailer for when it's got Daniel Craig and Harrison Ford is directed by John Favreau. It's going to be great. Not a good movie. I've wanted that one to be good so many times and it just doesn't. I've rewatched it hoping I could find something and I can't. But you also had X-Men First Class, Captain America, the first Avenger, and Thor all came out in 2011. So perhaps Green Lantern was seen as such a failure because it didn't live up to three pretty strong comic book movies in X-Men First Class, Captain America, and Thor. That's a lot to live up to when you're being compared. So maybe it wasn't Green Lantern was so bad, it was just in the wrong class Mm -hmm. because it was compared to some other really good ones. However, when watching it, it really is that bad. Uh, they, the one thing that the MCU, and I think we have mentioned this before that it gets credit for, but maybe doesn't even get, get enough credit for, is having a plan. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that there was ever a plan that was really thought through for Green Lantern. Other than, hey, Iron Man made a lot of money let's find something kind of similar and do kind of the same thing. And then we'll have our own superhero movie, but we don't really have a plan for how it's going to go. And we're going to have a lot of different writers involved and we're going to spend way too much time explaining to the audience what's going on. And I think that is the, the number one issue. The first issue that I have with green lantern is they spend, they didn't have a plan and they spend way too much time explaining things. If you compare the first act of Green Lantern and the first act of Guardians of the Galaxy, Guardians of the Galaxy should probably have a lot more exposition going on. We should probably have a little bit more background, but literally we get, in, we get introduced to Star-Lord and Gamora and a talking raccoon and a giant tree and this Drax guy whose family might be you know, have been murdered all with about one line of dialogue is their background. And then we're off on an adventure mm-hmm. in green lantern. We spend, I think like an hour learning about background and there's a lot of voiceovers and they literally have three different meetings. It's like your first day of a new job. You get there and you fill out some paperwork and then you go to a meeting with HR and then you have to watch some videos and then you go meet with your, you know, the team you're going to be working with, but Oh, we got to also introduce you to this other team that you're going to be working. You're just bouncing and you're just kind of walking along and you're bored out of your mind. And you're not really absorbing any of this information because you're really just curious, like, where's my desk and will it be close to the bathroom? And what am I actually going to be doing here? But you spend the whole day in meetings. And by the time you get done at the end of the day, somebody's like, Hey, how was your first day? And you're like, I just, you know, it was a, it was a lot of meetings and some paperwork and I, I really don't know what I'm going to be doing here. And that's how we spend the entire first part of Green Lantern, bouncing from meeting to meeting, getting told a bunch of stuff, none of which is all that interesting. There are a couple scenes which definitely feel like they were of that early 2000s era where they were like, let's just show off the special effects because then we're going to turn this into a 3D movie. So we want to have some 3D moments to show off where we're just putting this in there for the 3D special effect and it doesn't further the plot anymore. Or Mm -hmm. it's just to show off the 
hey, we can do this. And Green Lantern should be one of the most interesting characters because literally as a writer or a filmmaker, you're given no restrictions. The, the power ring, the Green Lantern ring can be anything. You can create anything that you can imagine can come out of that ring. So it should be just unlimited possibilities for writers. But it felt like because there was no guidelines and because there were too many options it was that you know gordon ramsay thing where he walks into a restaurant and there's a menu that has 37 pages and it just overwhelms people so they always just get what they get before because they don't want to try anything new because there's too much to read and there's too many options so they default to their favorite dish so you don't even sell half the stuff or most of the stuff on the menu because people are just like i'll just get a burger and fries i'm too overwhelmed Mm -hmm. it was like too many options for what the green the the Green Lantern ring could do, so they had to show it off a couple times, and then they didn't really do anything with it. And then they're like, "Oh, yeah, we've got this thing," so they use it a little bit later. Uh, the special effects look cool, but they also didn't seem to have a purpose. And in a movie where you can do anything with a ring, they should have a lot more purpose. Uh, another problem with the movie that didn't work is how many times they seemingly just dropped a plot line. Uh, they kind of give us this glimpse of the politics that are happening in the Green Lantern Corps, but then we really don't pay that off. And there's one scene where Hal, after the beginning of the movie where he crashes a plane, meets with his two brothers and his nephew, and you think, like, this is going to be a big part of the movie, and then we never talk about those people again. Uh, I think there is where you can see how many different scripts this really was and how they kind of piecemealed it together, because it feels like, oh, the family is going to be a big part of the movie. Oops, never talk to them again. The Green Lantern Corps and the politics are, are going to be a part of the movie. Oh, we're never going to talk to them. Sinestro is making a yellow ring. That's going to be a big part. We should definitely pay attention to that. Oh, that's going to be saved for the sequel. And that leads me to probably the next and maybe biggest problem with the film is they spent the entire time thinking they were going to be a trilogy or at least several movies, and they set all the sequels up. And once you spend your whole movie setting up the sequel, you don't have a movie. Right. And so they saved the best villain, the most interesting villain. And and quite frankly, Mark Strong is not given much to do, but he plays a good villain. And this is kind of in his heyday of playing villains. He was the bad guy in uh, Sherlock Holmes Game of Shadows as well around this time. And he's quite good. And you want Sinestro is known, like he's the one named green lantern like arch nemesis and in this entire movie it's like ah he's just kind of there he complains a couple times he hops up he insults ryan reynolds and then he's going to be set up for the bad guy in the sequel you can't set the bad guy up for the sequel in the first one when the bad guy for the first one is simply an angry cloud right they created parallax it looks like a giant cloud of fear and it flies around And sometimes it's corporeal, so you can punch it. And sometimes you can fire missiles at it, but sometimes you fly right through it and it doesn't make any sense. And more concerningly, we as an audience just don't care. We didn't didn't get to know Abin Sir long enough to care that he dies at the beginning of the movie. We don't have any emotional investment in stopping Parallax because he is destroying the Green Lantern Corps because we barely got to know them. There's no emotional investment and it becomes a very rudderless film where they can't figure out which plot lines they want to move forward. They can't figure out who the bad guy's really going to be. And by the time you get to the climax, it's unfulfilling. It's empty. It's clearly set up for another movie. So you don't even get any enjoyment out of it. And 
while Hollywood is great at setting up new movies and MCU especially is really good at tying everything together and making the next movie, like making you want the next movie, they're also really good at giving you a definitive ending and giving you a climax moment that you enjoy and gives the movie something to feel good about. And even in the climax movie moment of this movie, when you finally get to see some cool things happen with the ring and Hal Jordan played by Ryle Reynolds is about to punch Parallax into the sun, which suddenly he's corporeal and he was never corporeal before you couldn't punch him. He went through him, but whatever. He literally has just flown through him as a giant cloud a second ago, but now he can punch him when he punches him into the sun. You're like, okay, next. And it feels like completely unfulfilling. And so that fame, same frustrations that I got from Max Payne, where you had all this opportunity and you really don't get any payoff for it, are felt in Green Lantern. There are some cool scenes and there are some good things. And after watching it more than four times in four days, three, four days, I, I do have several interesting and good things that I can point out. Uh, the powers, when they did use them, some of the effects look really cool. And it is well done, especially the scene with the helicopter and the racetrack catching the helicopter. Other than the fact that everything in that scene defies all laws of physics and landing helicopters and how things break because the helicopter flies through a building and doesn't get the helicopter itself doesn't get injured, which is really strange. Uh, other than like the complete suspension of any disbelief, the special effects look really good. The final battle between Parallax and Hal Jordan as Green Lantern is pretty good for a space battle. Uh, the effects and, and digital nature look good in that. They look horrible as the costume. The idea that the entire costume, including the masks, should be CGI looks really, really strange. And just because you can do something doesn't mean you should, if I could paraphrase Dr. Uh, Malcolm from Jurassic Park. They were so focused on that something they could do that they didn't think if they should do it. And right. giving somebody a CGI costume uh, was impressive from a technical standpoint and horrible from a viewing standpoint because you just never you never forget that it's cgi and so you're always being pulled out of the magic of the moment you lose that movie magic that a special effect is supposed to create by constantly being hey that's cgi and it looks really weird uh the chemistry and the cast is pretty good i mean you've got really talented people you've got ryan reynolds you've got maki watiti you've got blake lively who is just a vision in this movie uh the script is horrible so the scenes between her and ryan who would then go on to be her husband in real life you wonder uh if they had any chemistry without the script uh or they had chemistry clearly without the script because the script doesn't create any that's all like absolutely natural you can tell these two people really like each other because the script isn't giving them any help um you you waste the script wastes completely the presence of Tim Robbins and Angela Bassett, which how do you oh have- Oh my gosh, I forgot. Right, they're, they're both in it. They don't get to do anything and they have virtually no impact on the long-term plot. So you wonder like, why did their agent allow them to take this role, especially Angela Bassett? There is no reason that anyone should have read that script and said, oh yeah, Angela, you should do this movie. None whatsoever. I don't know, like if she didn't, have a very long uncomfortable talk with her agent after that unless she did it as like a favor to somebody else uh she's completely wasted the film uh peter Skarsgård is fine but 
you literally have him playing the same character that was in the Incredible Hulk movie with uh, Edward Norton. You have a scientist who ends up having this uh, stuff affect him and he gets a giant brain. And There's nothing new about the character and he's not an evil dude as a character. Mm -hmm. He accidentally touches something and then he gets controlled by Parallax and then at one point, instead of getting any redemption, he just gets his soul sucked out of him. And you don't feel good when he is defeated because the poor guy was just in the wrong place at the wrong time consistently and never did anything all that evil other than be jealous of Hal Jordan being like getting the girl and being handsome and popular. So, I mean, it was very strange when we're like, Oh good. That guy's gone because like, couldn't we just like get the stuff out of him? Like give him a redemption. Like don't just kill him because he really wasn't a bad dude at all. He was just in the wrong place at the right, wrong time. Right. Uh, so he's given, he's given not a whole lot to work with. So the cast is really good. The script is awful they start plot lines that they never finish. They don't know where they're going other than trying to set everything up for a sequel and a great performance or a potentially great performance by Mark Strong, where he could have played sort of the, the scenes where he and Ryan Reynolds quit back and forth actually work pretty well. And I would be interested in seeing a whole movie of that. And at the end, again, spoiler alert, in the mid credit scene, DCU trying to, to rip off the MCU at the, at the time, has a mid-credit scene where Sinestro finally puts on the yellow ring and becomes the yellow Sinestro, the power of fear, the guy who's going to become the bad guy and the arch nemesis of Hal Jordan. Uh, but they do it in the, the mid-credits, setting it up for the next movie. I would rather they skip the entire first movie that they put out and just made a movie about Hal Jordan versus Sinestro and then given us the backstory halfway through or peppered it in. That would have been a much better film and they could have played a lot more with the special effects, doing a lot of it, more of it in space and getting rid of the subplot of the American government somehow being involved with aliens and all that nonsense. So Green Lantern is as bad as you remember. <laughs> However, as, as, as Ryan Reynolds said, uh, in a uh, series of tweets in January of last year, or sorry, January, February of last year, he finally watched it himself. And this is something that I have never truly understood. Actors that will film a movie or a TV series and then just never watch it. I, I mean, don't... okay, but okay, you can kind of understand that because when you, I mean, it's a different level, but like, after you would make a commercial when 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 we were working together, you didn't automatically go and sit and listen to that commercial. That's true. But I mean, that's like an hour's worth of work as opposed to, and we never had like a red carpet premiere for the commercial. True. You know, like do I've never gone to a red carpet or like a real red carpet career. Like a, I, we had a fake one for an independent movie. I was in once. It was a lot of fun, but that was just us. But do they not like when they go to man's Chinese theater and everybody gets on the red carpet and they walk in and they're all dressed up. Don't they watch the movie? Don't they like all sit down and then like watch the movie or is that not actually happen? If I've just been assuming this whole time that it actually is them watching the movie. I always thought they did as well. But so some of them must like Ryan Reynolds must have ducked out at the Green Lantern uh, premiere because he said he'd never watched it until uh, 2011. So or 2011, so 10 years later. So the January 
February of this year, because the tweets came out that he finally sat down and watched it. And what he said is that there were a lot of people that did a, that put a lot of hard work into the movie and it wasn't as bad as it's made out to be. And there are some good parts to it. And it was more than anything, it was a film that suffered from Hollywood uh, syndrome, which was movie poster first, marketing second, script third. Mm-hmm. And you can definitely tell that they spent a lot of time thinking of how big a blockbuster this is going to be and having the tie-ins and having the toys and having the promotion and not nearly enough time creating an actual workable script that would be enjoyable down the line. And that's why they never got the big payoff that they thought they were going to. It was made for $200 million. It grossed worldwide $218 million. $19 million, which I am certainly not going to laugh at, is nothing for a Hollywood studio. They were hoping to make you know, $500 million or more uh, in gross for the movie. And that's why we never got to see the sequels that the movie spends the entire time setting up. Uh, if you have not seen Green Lantern, and are interested in watching it for some inexplicable reason, uh, or you're just a fan of Ryan Reynolds or Taka Waititi or would love to see some CGI costumes, uh, or just want to look at Blake Lively for an hour and a half, uh, you can find Green Lantern on HBO Go with your subscription. You can also purchase it on Prime Video for $3.99. I believe you can get it through iTunes as well. Uh, and unfortunately, as long as Ryan Reynolds and the crew continue to pretend it never happened, we will never get to see what I think would have been a good movie with Mark Strong as Sinestro and Ryan Reynolds as Green Lantern battling it out across the cosmos. Are you really that sad by it? I think it, I really do feel like it would have been a much better movie if they just let those two battle it out and had a, a cohesive plot and not just randomly spent time and committee meetings telling us about the history of the Green Lanterns, but it will never happen. My hope is there's been talk about doing like a TV series. There's been talk of another movie, but the longer that it is a punchline, the less likely any Green Lantern property is going to succeed. Yeah. Yeah. I will say that one of my favorite parts of Deadpool is when he does go back and take out Ryan Reynolds. to Oh get yeah. Stuff. It's just funny. I mean, it was, it's very funny, but the unintended consequence is that now it's made it okay for everybody to pile on. And I I think that's what we saw last year with with the, or earlier this year with the tweets is that I think even Ryan Reynolds is starting to feel bad about ripping on Green Lantern because it's become just unnecessary. Like there have been a lot worse comic book movies. Yeah. But you know, Josh Brolin isn't reminding people how much Jonah Hex sucked ever. No one remembers he was in the movie because it was that bad. Right. Yeah. And to think he went on to be, speaking of comic books, one of the best villains. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he, and he was, and Josh Brolin has been in several more. I mean, he was Cable in Deadpool too. Yeah, uh, that's he, true. He was. And Ryan Reynolds, I mean, all of the good things, like I don't think Deadpool happens without some of like the success of it. Like the jokes Ryan Reynolds was was very good at joking, but there is a line that somebody said that it, it felt like Green Lantern was like Van Wilder trying to do a, a, a superhero movie. <laughs> you you basically could draw like draw the line of the character of Van Wilder through to Hal Jordan and kind of make them the same character. Yeah, uh, they definitely, and that's not they made him a little bit more 
Tony Stark uh, than Hal Jordan was ever in the comics, at least in the ones that I remember. But didn't read a ton of Green Lantern, but he he was not the wisecracking, you know, playboy. I mean, at the very beginning of the movie, Hal Jordan wakes up in bed with a blonde that we never see again, who is not named. And there, you think there's going to be a plot line, but nope, that's just never mentioned again. So Do you think some... she's like, where's my IMDb credit? Yeah, I, I'm sure. I'm sure she's got one, but it's probably like girl in bed. Let's see if we can find it. Uh, I was literally about to look for it too. But it's just so many moments where they're like, oh, well, we'll start this, but never like pay it off. It's like it adds nothing to this, nothing to the film other than like, oh, it looks like this gentleman is attractive and may have an active dating life which we don't really need to know. P.S. Mark Strong, great in um, Shazam. Yeah, I, he's just, he's good. I, he's a, plays a good bad guy. And that's why I think there was just such a opportunity that they completely just, you know, skipped out on. I do not see a listing for girl... In... So there, there is beautiful girl. Maybe, maybe that's her. Yep, that's her. That's her beautiful girl. Okay. And that is one of her two credits. <laughs> What's the other one? Average girl. Uh, no, imp- she was in a. She was a New Yorker in an Improv Everywhere Originals in two thousand nine. That's got to be frustrating. Hmm. All right. Yeah. Oh, there it is. So. Is that the uh, is that the A that, side? That is the A side, and my goal for next week is not to be a grumpy Gus and to talk about something that I enjoy, as opposed to something that I dislike. <laughs> all right. Um, of course, before we get out of here, want to remind you that all of our our sources and photos will be on our website, which is A side B side podcast dot square dot site. Yes, and also while you're over on the website, you can submit uh, a story maybe you have uh, a true crime story or maybe you have a movie or a that guy slash that girl from that show that you would like adam to do you can do that on our website as well also while you're there we've got merch we've got face masks you know uh winter is approaching winter is coming uh we've got sweatshirts t-shirts all kinds of goodies on there uh another and that also helps the podcast another way to help the podcast is you can buy us a coffee buymeacoffee.com slash a side b side pod we have the socials we have instagram we have twitter we have facebook so you can always reach us on there if you have an idea and you're like i can't remember the website well just hit us up on the socials as well uh we are um i i we post on our socials quite a bit Mm -hmm. i've been trying to post behind the scenes pictures of the podcast setup I got a new mic stand today. So I'm very excited about that. So it's, so it's on my Instagram. I know one of these days we're going to do a, a record of, of, of us recording the podcast, a video of us recording the podcast. Yeah. I've, we've, we've threatened that before. I don't know if, I don't know if society is quite ready for that. (laughs) Um, Also you can like share and follow on uh, YouTube now Facebook has a thing where you can listen directly on Facebook as well. Um, also uh, iTunes as well as Spotify. You can uh, follow us 
uh, on Spotify as well. And oh, a quick update for you from last week. So I thought that I was going to get to interview um, Joey McIntyre from New Kids on the Block. New Kids announced their big mixtape 2022 tour along with En Vogue, Salt and Peppa, and Rick Astley. I did not get to talk to Joey. I did, however, get to talk to Mr. Rick Roll himself, Rick Astley, and talk about a great guy, like really charming, really personable. Um, does not have any issues with the Rick roll. You know, you think, oh, maybe he's kind of tired of the Rick roll. Nope. Nope. No. He loves it. Yeah. Every, every time that happens, I get another penny. Let's do it. <laughs> uh, and a show that you really like, Adam, uh, Ted Lasso, they actually did something quite special with his song on there. So I don't want to spoil it for you, but I, it was featured on there. So when you watch that, you'll have to let me know what you think. And now that now that the season is complete, I'm going to binge watch the whole thing. And, and of course, in classic Adam timing, uh, I just got the email uh, yesterday that my one year, my free one year of Apple Plus uh, is now expired. Yeah, I just paid for mine again today, like this so. morning. And I was like, well, I forgot to to uh, cancel again and I still haven't watched it. So I really need to go ahead and watch Ted Lasso. Yeah. It's 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 really enjoyable. I wanted to wait till the season was over because I know I'm just gonna want to binge watch the whole thing, and uh, I'm I'm not good. I'm trying to do this whole like, I don't know how we did it for like 50, 60 years of TV, but waiting a week sucks. It does. It it's, really does. It is not fun. Like I'm doing it with NCIS, and I'm I'm, I'm trying to wait, but then it's like, oh yeah, I. Did that happen last night? What day is it? Did I record that? Do I have to sit down and watch it? Will it be? Exp- yeah, it's just, I'm so out of practice. I don't know how we did it in the olden times. Well, we also didn't know any better. Yeah, we probably weren't building. Well, actually, I was going to, I was going to say people weren't building their lives around like when TV shows were, but I was like, probably more so at that point. Yeah. Because if you missed it, you missed it. It was, I mean, you missed an episode of, you know, MASH. It wasn't on anywhere else. You had to watch it when it was out. So maybe people were just better at schedules then. Yeah, I think so. I think I think we were better at, okay, so we have to be home at this time. So let's do this, this, this. this. And there seems to be, a, there weren't as many things to watch, as many options then. That's true. Yeah. You know, yeah, you had yeah. the, you had your four basic cable channels. Yeah. Yeah. Your four, your four networks. And even for, you know, for a long time, it was just three, you know, ABC, CBS, and NBC. Mm-hmm. And Fox came along. And, and then a, here comes young Fox in the mix, just trying to stir it all up. And all of a sudden we got, we got everything. So I do remember that I felt personally responsible for the UPN canceling both platypus man and pigsty because i had a basketball game in seventh grade and i couldn't get home to watch them in time and the next week they were canceled platypus man wasn't that jason alexander uh, it was uh no that was um uh that was duck man duck man okay yeah, yeah. platypus man was the short-lived uh series uh starring uh, richard jenny who would uh was a comic at the time and oh it, man yeah sad story it, and then uh, Pigsty was about a bunch of dudes living together in an apartment, kind of like the broy friends. Yeah. Uh, and in seventh grade, I thought they were great. 
I was the only one on earth because I missed one week and they got canceled. I didn't realize at the time that Nielsen ratings didn't count every TV. So I legitimately thought that I had missed the episode. And that was one of the reasons they got canceled. <laughs> Carried that guilt with me a long time until I discovered ratings books were a thing. So, <laughs> Oh man. All right. Well, Adam, that is another episode. Thank you. Thank you, Brooke. We'll talk to you.